Amen. Well, we've had a difficult week at our church. This has been a difficult week. We had Wally Thompson's funeral on Wednesday. Wally's been a part of this church for a long time. Him and Nancy have been married for over 50 years. And we we buried him on Wednesday. It's very difficult. And also all that's going on with this with this virus, the pandemonium and the and the difficulty and the stress and anxiety that we all feel. And the stock market, if you have a 401k, I imagine that you've been feeling some financial anxiety this week. A lot going on in our world. And many things are difficult. I think of the single mom this week who's in South Dakota. School's been canceled and now she has to find daycare or care for her children as she goes to work. I think of those who have aging parents and the concerns that they have for them. Many difficult things going on. And it's important that we realize this and recognize this. As Christians, we live in this world and we experience the difficulties of this world. Yet nonetheless, while those things are true, we must also remember that our identity is not here. That as Christians, we have hope. And that's what separates us from this world. We experience many of the same trials and tribulations of this world. All of them. But we do not experience these trials and these difficulties without hope. We have hope. We gather to remember and proclaim that hope. We have peace and safety in Jesus Christ. And that while we will experience trials in this world, Jesus says, in this world, you will experience many tribulations. That is true. Jesus also says, behold, I have overcome the world. And we gather this morning to remember and to cherish and to live out that hope together. And this passage that I'm dealing with, one of the issues I wrestled with this week was whether or not to pause my exposition in Philippians to go to a different passage, a passage that deals with social turmoil and peace and hope. And I decided not to. Some of the, uh, I had some of the elders input in this. And they encouraged me to continue on. And so I wrestled this week with this passage. The passage that we're dealing with this morning doesn't immediately address our circumstances. It's dealing with a different issue. But what I want, to see, I wa- I want you to see and what it is that I ultimately saw in this passage and, and my understanding of the passage changed as I went through the week and studied it is what I want you to see this morning is that God is teaching us in this passage to view reality, specifically salvation, with a God-centeredness that we are supposed to, as Christians, specifically with salvation, the issue that is addressed this morning in our passage. As Christians, we are to view salvation in light of God, not ourselves. And also in life, as these circumstances and difficulties barrage us, what the Lord wants us to do is to see reality in light of His perspective and not in light of our own. There's a necessary God-centeredness that we must have when understanding our salvation and ultimately our circumstances. 
That's what I think God wants to teach us this morning. And it's from this passage in Philippians, Philippians 2, 12 through 13. Go ahead and turn there with me. This is truly a powerful passage. It, 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 it harnesses some theological paradox that is difficult to untie and untangle, but it sits here for us, for us to digest and feel and understand and believe. A truly tremendous passage. Verse 12, we will go through verse 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Verse 13, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Two points this morning, very simple points. The first point for you is this, our work our work. And we get this from verse 12. Now the context here in, in verse 12, Paul has this long preface. There's a command that he gives in verse 12, and that's going to be the center, excuse me, the centerpiece of what we talk about in verse 12 for this first point. But he has this long introduction. And he says this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, Comma, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. What we're going to focus, focus on with this point is this last statement of work out your salvation. That's the command that Paul is giving. But he has this long preface. And what he's doing here at the beginning of verse 12 is he is unpacking his context, what, the context in which he's writing it. And that context, remember, he is in jail. Paul is in jail. And he has this longing to see the Philippians. And he believes that this longing would be met. He believes that one day he would see them. But his desire for the church is that even in his absence, that they would obey. That's what Paul is saying with this preface, that the Philippians would obey even in light of Paul's absence. So that's kind of all that Paul refers to prior to this notion of work out your salvation. Now the command here, the central idea in verse 12 is for us to work out our salvation. Now, as Protestants, we read this and we kind of eh, feel some tension here. Pastor, I thought that we are saved by grace through faith alone, that we don't work, we do not earn our salvation. Yes, that is true. And I want you to see here, dear friend, is that what Paul says, look with me very closely at the end of verse 12. Paul does not say, work for your salvation. You notice that Paul does not say that. Paul says, work out your salvation. Those two ideas are communicating very different. Those two statements are communicating very different ideas. One would teach, work for your salvation, would, if that's what Paul said, Paul would be communicating there that we are to earn our salvation. But Paul doesn't say that. Paul does not say, work for your salvation. He says, work it out. 
And in order for one, in order for you, in order for the Philippians to work out their salvation, they must first possess it. To work something out, if my wife tells me, well, you need to go work out, you need to go to the gym. That would assume that I have a body to go work out, right? So when Paul says to work out your salvation, he is assuming that point to work out your salvation is built upon the idea that they have salvation, that they've been saved. And this raises the larger theological point, which I've dealt with before, that salvation, there's three parts to salvation. There's a past tense notion of salvation. We have been saved. There's a current part of salvation. We are being saved. And there is a future part of salvation that we will be saved. And all of those are what salvation is. Salvation features three different parts. Turn to Philippians 1.6 with me. And we see this all in one passage. Philippians 1.6. And I am sure of this. What is he sure of? He's sure, Paul is sure that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Now I want you to see that Paul mentions three parts of salvation in Philippians 1.6. The first part is this notion of beginning. God began a good work in them. This is past tense from the perspective of when Paul is writing. Paul is talking about that God had begun so God had started, past tense, this process of salvation. And oftentimes we refer to that as justification. God has begun this work in them, past tense. But then Paul says, God will bring it to completion. To bring something to completion assumes a process, an ongoing process, that God is doing this. As Paul writes this in Philippians 1.6, Paul is bringing about this good work in them currently, right now, in us. God is bringing out in us, in Christians, those who have been saved. He is bringing out in them salvation. He, it is a process. The word that we usually give to this is sanctification. And then God will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Now, when is the day of Jesus Christ? That is a future reality. This is coming. This has not happened. God will complete it, future, when Jesus returns. So in one passage here, Philippians 6, 1, 6, excuse me, you have a past tense notion of salvation. God began this good work. He will bring it to completion. It's a process. It's ongoing. And ultimately, it will be fulfilled in the future when Jesus returns. This is referring to glorification. God will raise our bodies from the dead. God will raise Wally Thompson's body from the dead. That's the completion of salvation. So three parts. So with that paradigm in mind, looking back at 2.12, what part of that three-part paradigm is Paul talking about? Now, if you'll remember, I said that these Philippians have salvation. So it can't be the first part. And also, it's not the end part because they're not being raised from the dead. This is the process part. In Philippians 1.12, what Paul is saying, 
Paul is telling the Philippians, Paul is telling you that in your sanctification, you are to work at it. Yes, you are saved if you've believed upon Jesus Christ. That is true. Yes, you have been justified. That is true. And yes, one day you will be justified, excuse me, glorified. But in this meantime, right now, what we are supposed to do as Christians, we are to work out our salvation. And what this idea of working out our salvation, not earning it, let me be very clear. Once again, I've said this before, but we do not earn our salvation. But once we are saved, we work at it. It's like a muscle. You go to the gym and you work your muscles out. We are to regularly, daily, repent of our sins. We are to work at our salvation. We are to prove it. That is sanctification. And what this idea goes against, there's this common statement within evangelicalism. I don't know where it comes from, but I'm sure that you've heard it. Let go and let God. Have you heard this before? Let go and let God. I've heard it. And I don't really know the meaning of it, but the idea that it communicates is that you are to be passive in your approach to sanctification. That you are to be passive, that you are to be reserved. That you are to just wait for God to show up in your life and change you. Now it is true, dear friend, it is true that we must have patience. Over and over again, the Bible says that we are to wait on the Lord. I'm not saying that we shouldn't do that. However, even in waiting, we pursue it. We strive after it. The Christian life, if you are a Christian this morning, what God calls you to do is not passivity. Passivity has no room in the Christian life. That even in patience, we work at it. We strive at it. With all of our might, what we do as Christians is we fight the fight of faith. If you're stressed, if you're anxious during this time, if your mind is constantly set on, I want to look at the news, what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to fight those urges. Not sit back and say, well, I'll just wait for God to show up. You're supposed to pursue the things of the Lord. Work at it. No passivity. Fervent, passionate pursuit of Christ in our sanctification. As we are being saved, as God brings about these good works in our life, we are supposed to fight the fight of faith. Pursue Christ. Pray fervently. No passivity. Don't let go and let God. Work at it. That's what Paul is telling us here. And the manner in which we are to do that, the manner that we do this in, right at the end of verse 12, we are to do it with fear and trembling. With fear and trembling. And what Paul is communicating here, if you look in verse 10, 2.10, Paul communicates that one day every knee will bow. There's coming a day when all people, both Christians and non-Christians, will bow before Jesus and recognize that he is who he says he is. That's coming. And that day 
as we live the Christian life, our minds need to always be set on that day. There's coming a day for you, dear Christian, and non-Christian. There's coming a day of accountability. And that accountability is, produ- is to produce in you, verse 12, fear and trembling. But this fear is a healthy fear. It is a godly fear. There's oftentimes, specifically in our day, you gotta buy all the toilet paper you can. There is an unhealthy fear, an un- unra- irrational fear, a non-realistic fear, a fear of dread. Paul is not saying that here. Paul is not saying that we should dread or have undue anxiety. But rather, we are to have a healthy fear. And I think a good story to illustrate this is a story from my life. One of the most stressful situations I've ever been in was whenever I was finishing up my time in Dallas and I had to pass some comprehensive exams. Now, as you can tell by the adjective, comprehensive, they were quite large topics, theological topics. I had to take four tests, four written exams, and then if I passed those, I had to take an oral examination. And this, the prep time for this test, these tests, was about eight months. And I had friends who took the tests before me, and some of them failed. Some of them failed. And if you fail, the professors would make you take another six months to study. And my greatest fear in taking these tests was that I would have to come home to my wife and tell her, sweetie, I failed. I thought about that often. That was my worst fear. Sweetie, we have to stay in Dallas for another six months. That greatly troubled me. And yet, it fueled my study, right? I studied with a healthy sense of fear. And whenever I passed my four written exams, I had to take an oral exam, all my professors, four of them. And I tell you what, I've never sweat so much in my whole life. I mean, just profusely, so stressed out. But I had this healthy fear. I didn't come in there lacks of days and go, hey guys, you know, what's the, what's the weather, weather like? A very healthy, sober sense of fear. I was gonna be held accountable. And that fear drove my studies. And what Paul is saying here, this, this fear and trembling that he's talking about in verse 12 is a healthy notion of accountability. We all one day, although we cannot see it now, the Bible says that there's coming a time of judgment. For the Christian, this is not a judgment of salvation. This is a judgment of our works. But we will be held accountable. And dear friend, that coming accountability needs to fuel your working out your salvation. Carelessness, carefreeness, The Bible does not allow us to be carefree in the matters of salvation. We have to passionately, urgently pursue the things of Christ because one day we will be held accountable and that fear in us, that trembling in us produces a greater sense of urgency and necessity. 
Now we turn to verse 13. So the first point was our work, what it is that we do. And now we turn to verse 13. For this point, for verse 13, write this, God's work. First point, our work. Second point, God's work. And as we transition to verse 13, I, I'm going to really, I really want you to see what Paul is doing here. What does verse 13, what word does verse 13 begin with? It begins with four. Four. What Paul is doing in verse 13 is he is giving the basis for verse 12. And the way that we know that, the way that we know that verse 13 is serving as the foundation upon which verse 12 is built is because of the four. This is a logical, transitional word. And this four is very important. What Paul is not saying here, Paul is not saying that we should work our, out our salvation in cooperation with God working it out in us, like we're kind of a team. God does his part, and we're supposed to do our part. There's no team mentality here. And also, the relationship here between verse 12 and verse 13, our work and God's work, is not God helps those who help themselves. That what we need to do is we take the initiative, and if God sees us doing what's right, he will come alongside us and help us more. Okay, that's not what's being communicated here. And the reason why I'm saying this, dear friends, is because of the four in verse 13. Verse 13 is serving as the foundation of verse 12. So what is that foundation? What is the basis of our laboring and our salvation? What is the basis? Why? What is the foundation? What is the ultimate reason why we pursue the things of God? Verse 13. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. What this is teaching us, what verse 12 and verse 13 are teaching us in a broad picture, is that in the Christian life, in salvation, we have a responsibility we have a commandment as Christians. And that commandment is to work out our salvation, to pursue the things of God. Dear friend, if you're here this morning, you must respond to Christ by pursuing him. Now let's say you do. Okay, let's say you do work out your salvation. Why do you do that? Is it your own doing? Is it because you're smarter than the rest? Is it because you have better insight? No. You do that because God is producing it sovereignly, independently of you, in you. That's what verse 13 is telling us. God is working in us. And what is it he works in us, dear friend? We are supposed to work because God is working in us. And what he works in us, verse 13, is the will both to will and to work. Now this willing and working, the willing, the to will here, 
is referring to desires. If you ever have a godly desire, which I pray that you do often, that desire is there. Why is that desire there? Because God is working that in you. We have godly desires to pursue Christ because God put those desires in our hearts. God worked that in us. And not only do the desires, the godly desires come from God, not from us, also to work. The working comes from God as well. So let's say you go home and you say, you, you pray and you say, Lord, I wanna work out my salvation. And this week, this week you have, it's a great week for you spiritually. You truly work out your salvation. Let's say you do that. What Paul is saying in verse 13 is that work that you're doing ultimately is not you. That's God's work. Yes, you are, God is producing that in and through you, but the credit, and if you were to have a microscope that you could see in your heart, the invisible realities, what you would see, you would see God's sovereign hand producing that in you. Not just the desire, but also the execution of those desires. God produces these desires and the execution. God produces in us, verse 12, this working out our salvation. And we know all of this, dear friend, because of the four at the beginning of verse 13. And ultimately, what it's all about, what life is all about, what the Christian life is all about, you obeying verse 12, what that's all about, is found at the end of verse 13. Why does God work in us, the willing and the working, for our salvation? Why? Right at the end of verse 13, for his good pleasure. Now this ties in very nicely with our sermon last week in verse 11. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. What is the purpose of this universal bowing and confessing that Jesus is Lord? What is the purpose? The purpose is to the glory of God the Father. And then at the end of verse 13, he produces this work in us for his good pleasure. These are talking about the same realities. God delights to be glorified. And what he does in us is he brings about the realities of verse 12 in our lives. He brings about salvation in this church, in this world, through these difficult times for his good pleasure. God delights in seeing himself in us. And what God is doing in this world and in your life is he is producing these realities, this willing and working out your salvation for his own delight. God delights to see his work in your life. And that's what God is accomplishing. Verse 13 is the foundation for verse 12. We are responsible and there is a command. There is application for you this morning. And that's verse 12. But if you do verse 12, it's because of verse 13. 
And as we conclude, I'd like to draw, kind of touch upon what we, what we discussed at the beginning. What this world, what's going on in this world is we are being barraged by circumstances, constantly. And what the Lord wants us to do is the Lord wants us to have a divine perspective on reality. First on our salvation, first on our sanctification. God wants us to see that the work that he's producing, the work that is evident in our lives is there solely because of him. That's what he wants to first see us. But also he wants us to see that he's in control. That God is in control. And that all things, just like in salvation, all things, dear friend, are happening in accordance with his good pleasure. All things. This, this, what we talked about this morning is not isolated from what's going on in our world. And as you struggle, as you struggle with, with dealing with what's going on, the anxieties rise up. My prayer and hope for you this week is that you have a God perspective, not a man perspective. Yes, we are, we're living in this world, and we do have responsibilities to take care of. But the ultimate reality, the true reality, the reason why verse 12 is there is because of verse 13. The ultimate reality is God. And in that divine perspective, we have hope and peace and stability. That though this world may waste away, we have hope. And our God is true. And our God is in control. Father, we thank you for the clarity of your word. Father, I pray that you would give us a God perspective, a God-centeredness in understanding our salvation. That yes, Lord, we are called to respond. Yes, Lord, we are to work out our salvation. But ultimately, that working and that willing is established by you. And without verse 13, we do not have verse 12. Father, we thank you for the four. We thank you for the clarity of your word. Help us, Lord, as we fight the fight of faith this week. Encourage us, move in us, and produce in us verse 12. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.